Uh, do you want to be blessed? Uh, if you jump on social media and search for the word blessed, you get a mix of all sorts of things. Uh, there are Bible verses with nice backgrounds, and that's pretty good. Uh, there are mantras. Some sound kind of biblical, others from New Age gurus. Uh, there are people claiming to be prophets or astrologers. You can't really tell the difference between the two. They tell you how to command blessing from God or the universe. Then there are pictures of sports cars, happy families, sold houses, school or uni graduations, or even really big fish. What do you reckon it means to be blessed? And how do you get blessed? As we heard Galatians 3 read by Ruth, the word gets repeated over and over again, the word blessed gets repeated, as does the word curse, which is the opposite of blessed. Uh, this part of the Bible is about how to receive the promised blessing of God, how to be blessed. And it might challenge some of our understanding of God's blessing. It might challenge some of our ideas of how to be blessed. Uh, this passage is written as a rebuke, but if you hear the rebuke, It's actually an encouragement, an invitation into the promised blessing from God. As we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks, the reason Paul is writing this letter to believers in Galatia is because this is a church Paul has evangelised into existence. Uh, We read about this in Acts 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas were sent on a mission into Galatia, kind of central Turkey. And they go telling people that Jesus is God's promised king, that he's died and risen again to bring forgiveness and freedom. And the people in that region, both Jew and Gentile, heard and received that message. Uh, But sometime later... False teachers have come with a false gospel, a non-gospel. And sadly, the believers in Galatia have taken it on board. Uh, We heard it at the start of the letter, Galatians 1.6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is in shock that they've given up on the truth, that they've been fooled. Over the last couple of weeks, we've heard him explain why they should stick to the true gospel, why they should listen to the message they first heard from him. And now, chapter 3, we return to Paul's shock. He's flabbergasted that they've been fooled. Verse 1, so Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, read with me. Are you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, I don't think Paul really thinks someone's used magic to trick these believers. And it's not because of our modern dismissal of the supernatural. It's because Jesus has defeated the powers and principalities. Who would be the magician who's stronger than the crucified Christ? Now, it's a turn of phrase, but it's a serious one. He's so shocked that they do something so stupid, so foolish, that they must be under a spell. You can feel Paul's exasperation, his shock radiating from the page 
They've given up on the gospel. They've been fooled into giving up onto what, uh, in what Jesus has done. And instead they're looking to themselves and what they do for salvation. They've given up on what Jesus has done. They're now looking to themselves and what they do. It's like they're under a spell. They've, they've sucked in the lie. And in this passage, we're given three reasons why this is a lie. Three reasons why it's only because Christ has been crucified, only by trusting in him, clinging to him, he is the only way to receive God's blessing. And the three reasons are, one, because this is how the Spirit comes. That's in verses 2 to 5. Two, this is because this is how God's always worked, verses 6 to 9. And finally, because the cross of Christ is the great exchange, the great swap, verses 10 to 14. So first... Paul asks the Galatians to reflect on their own experience, their own story. They've seen the Spirit at work. They've experienced the, the Spirit of God promised to, uh, sorry, the Spirit that God promised to pour out. And so the question is, when did that happen? Uh, when Paul proclaimed Christ crucified before their very eyes or Did God's spirit begin working when these false teachers, these law teachers arrived? That's the question he's raising, wanting them to reflect on their own experience. So verse 2, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because uh, by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? I love it when the Bible surprises us. This is not where I'd expect Paul to begin his argument. If you were talking to someone who was walking away from Jesus, walking away from the gospel, would you ask them to reflect on when and how they received God's spirit? Why does Paul do this? It's because the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is a big deal. It's a big deal because it's one of the promises God made to his ancient people Israel. For example, God says through the prophet Isaiah, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Uh, the pouring out of the Spirit is a central component of God's promises. God promises, one day I'm going to pour out my Spirit. Uh, one day I'm going to refresh my people. The coming of the Spirit is, is a defining feature of the last days. God's future is the age of the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, we are living in that future now, aren't we? And Paul's saying to the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia. You've experienced this, haven't you? You've received God's spirit. And it wasn't when these people came and said, oh, you get circumcised. It wasn't when you started living under the law of the law of Moses. It was when you started trusting Jesus. The false teachers are saying, if you want God's blessing, 
you've got to live under the law. But Paul says, no, that's rubbish. God pours out his spirit through the gospel. A question we might ask is, how did they know, how did they know they'd received the spirit? Paul's asking them to reflect on their experience. Well, what was that experience? And we particularly ask this question because we live on this side of the Pentecostal movement. For the last 150 years, the question of what it looks like to receive the Spirit has been hotly debated. 150 years is not very long in church history, but for the last 150 years, this has been our experience of this is a big question for us. What does it feel like? What does it look like to receive the Spirit? I reckon there are three things, three experiences the Galatians would have reflected on as they heard this question. First, they know they received the Spirit because they believed. Conversion is a work of the Spirit. As 1 Corinthians 12 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, our hearts are hard, our ears are closed. Without the Spirit, we are dead in our sins. So conversion, that they believe the gospel, this is only because God has poured out his spirit. So the first evidence is conversion. The second is change. In Galatians 5, we hear how God the spirit changes believers. There's the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. We're going to come back to Galatians 5 in a few weeks. But a changed life, showing the fruit of the spirit, is another evidence God has poured out his spirit. And finally, verse 5 mentions miracles. Uh, What does this mean? What were they experienced? Well, we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 8, and you might remember it from last term, Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas were in Galatia, in the city of Lystra, God healed a man crippled from birth. He had never been able to work, uh, walk, but Jesus made him whole. And you might remember Acts 14 in Lystra, the crowd got it all wrong. They thought Paul and Barnabas were gods come down in the flesh, but they explained this miracle was of God. In the book of Acts, this is the only miracle recorded occurring in Galatia. But I take it from verse 5, God the Spirit worked other miracles through the Apostle Paul. So remember the question, when was the Spirit poured out? The answer is simple. It wasn't when they started following Jewish food laws or when they got circumcised. It wasn't during a particularly frenzied late night prayer meeting. It was when they received the gospel, believing Jesus is the Christ, crucified and risen for them, occurred only because the Spirit of God was poured out. So that's the first reason. The first reason Paul gives uh, to break the spell of the false teachers, he asks Christians to reflect on their own history. Uh, The second reason he gives comes from the history of Israel, Uh, the history of God's people who, sorry, the history of those people who are forcing Gentiles to look to the law for God's blessing. These false teachers have come down from Jerusalem. They're most likely ethnically Jewish people who've been brought up following the law of Moses. And now they're saying, hey, you guys, you Gentiles, you non-Jewish people, you've also 
got to follow the law if you really want God's blessing. But they don't even know their own story. They don't even know their own history. Because if you go back to the start of the people of Israel, right back with Abraham, God's blessings have always come through faith. So this is verse 6, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Remember from last week what justify means? Just as if I'd never sinned. It means being right with God. In these, in these verses about Abraham, verses 6 to 9, in English we get two words, righteousness and justify. They translate the same word in Greek. They mean the same thing. Righteousness and justify, they mean the same thing. Right before God. So have a look at verse 6. Galatians 3, 6. What made Abraham right with God? Well, Abraham comes from right back at the start of the Bible. We're not quite there yet in our, our Old Testament reading, but it's in the book of Genesis. We're about to meet Abraham in the book of Genesis. Abraham is the beginning of the nation of Israel. Uh, the quote in verse 6 is from Genesis 15. Uh, the story is, God has made promises to Abraham. Uh, you read them in Genesis 12. Promises to give Abraham nation, land and blessing. But you get to Genesis 15, so three chapters on, and Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are getting old. Well, maybe you don't think they're so old. Sarah is somewhere between 65 and 76 years old, and she's never had a child. And he's physically beyond having children. Yet God has said, God's promise is, you're going to have children. In fact, so many children. In Genesis 15, God says, look up at the stars. And this is before there were electric lights, so there were even more stars then than there are now. All the stars have been turned out somehow. Abraham got to look at all the stars, and God says, that's how many children, how many offspring, how many descendants you're going to have. Too many to count. That's God's promise. Look up at the promise. But then Abraham also looks around at the reality of the situation he is in. He is way too old to have any children, let alone an uncountable number of children. But then in the very next sentence, the very next breath we read, straight after God gives this unbelievable promise, Abraham believes. Abraham believes God's word, his promise, and it's credited to him as righteousness. He is right before God through faith. Now, some people read this and think, ah, I know what's going on. What's going on is that faith, believing, that must be a really, really, really good thing to do. It's like the most spiritual thing you could ever do, and it really impresses God. It, it must must be that it doesn't really matter to God how bad you are, how many bad things you do. As long as you do one good thing, and that one amazingly good thing is believing in God, and somehow this one good thing, faith, outweighs all of the bad things. 
It's kind of the, the spiritual version of maybe you are a horrible person. I, I know this is no one in the room here, but you've got, maybe you've got rich through your scheming, manipulative business um, practices and you are now mega, mega rich. You are an evil, wicked person. You don't care about who you oppress as long as you get rich. But then at the end of your life, you donate all of your money to charity. Maybe it's because you don't like your children anyway. And that's what you get remembered for. And you hope that your philanthropy outweighs all the oppression you've done throughout your life. You guys see right through it, don't you? It doesn't work like that. That is not what's going on with faith. It doesn't say that faith is righteousness or faith becomes righteousness. It says faith is credited as righteousness. We've been hearing lots of accounting terminology today. Credited is another accounting kind of terminology. So we had reconciliation. I don't like that word either. I Anyway, I won't tell you about the reconciliation I had to do this week. I just had the sense round the wrong way in the spreadsheet. Anyway, we're not talking about reconciliation here. We're talking about being credited. Before Abraham believed God's promises, think about it this way. There was no righteousness in Abraham's account. Because of his sin, and this is the same for all of us, because of his sin, Abraham was in debt to God. Abraham owed him perfect love, perfect obedience. With God, it's as if Abraham swipes his card and every time he does it, you get the beep, that horrible beep on the machine and the word across it says declined. Abraham was in debt to God because of his sin. But Abraham, God makes a promise to Abraham. God reaches out to Abraham, makes a promise. Abraham believes God's promise. And now God says, well, in my promise, in my faithfulness and my love to you, Abraham, there is no longer a debt, no longer a negative balance. Now your account reads righteous. Nothing has changed about Abraham. As you read the story of Abraham, as it goes on after Genesis 15, he still sins. He keeps, if you like, accruing more and more debt to God. It's got nothing to do with what he has done, but he believes God's promises and God gifts, God credits his account with righteousness. Now, how faith in Jesus does this gets explained uh, in the next section. But the point for now is, A justification by faith, having faith credited as righteousness, it's not something that Paul made up. It's not some new idea the Galatians have grabbed hold of. No, it's it's how God has always worked. God has always credited faith as righteousness. What's more... With Abraham, this promised blessing, the blessing of being in the right with God, of being credited righteous, this promise isn't just for Abraham. It's not just for Israel, not just for those who descended physically from Abraham. It's a promise to all the peoples, all the nations of the world. All nations will be blessed through you. Uh, Nations, it's the same word as Gentiles, all Gentiles will be blessed through Abraham. This is a quote from Genesis 12, God's promise to Abraham. God's promised blessing isn't only for Jews. It's not only for those who were given the law of Moses. It's for anyone and everyone who has faith in Jesus. 
There is only one way to be right with God. It's the same way for Abraham as it is for us. It's the same way for Jews and Gentiles. Faith in the promises of God. Faith in Jesus who is the yes and amen to God's promises. All right. So far we've had uh, two reasons to not look to the law, to not look to the things we do, to not look to them for God's blessing. The first is God's spirit was poured out when they received the gospel. It's not, not, didn't come when, he didn't come when they started living by the law. The second is it's always been about faith. Abraham was credited as righteous when he trusted God and it's the same now. The third reason is the great swap, the great exchange. And this final reason actually explains how God can credit righteousness to the account of sinners. And the reason is the great exchange. Jesus takes the curse and gives his righteousness. Curse for blessing. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do Everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, if you know the Old Testament, and particularly the the books of Moses, the law of Moses relatively well, you would know that in the law there is a promise of blessing. Deuteronomy 28 God said to Israel, if you obey this law, if you do everything it says, you will be blessed. There is a blessing in obeying the law, but God also says to Israel, if you don't do everything, you will be cursed. There is a promise of blessing and the warning of curse. The problem with the law isn't the law. The problem with the law isn't God. The problem with the law for Israel, the law that God gave Israel, is a problem with Israel. The problem is with people. We are sinners and they are sinners and we can never do everything the law says. And as the quote says in verse 10, it's a quote from Leviticus, if you don't live by everything, everything in the law, you'll be cursed by God. What does cursed mean? In the story of the Old Testament, it means to be cast out, kicked out of God's presence, expelled out of the land, invaded and sent into exile. It's the opposite of being blessed. Blessed means to be in the right with God, to be justified. Blessed means to enjoy fellowship and communion with God, filled with his spirit, enjoying his presence forever. But how can this happen? How can you and I receive this blessing? How can lawbreakers who deserve to be cursed, how can sinners receive God's blessing? How can Abraham be credited as righteous 
when he believes. Well, it's because on the cross, Jesus became the curse for his people. Jesus is the only one who deserves blessing because he completely obeys the law of Moses. He was born under the law and kept the law perfectly. Jesus is righteous because of his perfectly obedient life. And in God's love, his plan is to pour out his blessing, the blessing that Jesus deserves to credit righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, to everyone who believes. But how does he do this? How can he do this? How can he declare righteous those who are not in themselves righteous? Only through Jesus taking the curse onto himself. The righteous one taking the curse for us. And that's what happens on the cross. Verse 13 also quotes from the law, quotes from Leviticus and says, Cursed is everyone hung on a pole. In some Bibles it says hung on a tree or a cross because the original word means all that kind of things, all those kinds of things. At the time of Moses, when Leviticus was written 1,500 years or so before Jesus, this curse referred to someone, say, executed or defeated in a war and then their body was impaled, shamefully displayed for everyone to see, humiliated and cursed. By the time of Jesus, crucifixion had been invented. And Jews also applied this verse to crucifixion because when you're crucified, you're strung up on a piece of wood to die. Just as the criminal whose body is shamefully exposed is facing the curse of God, according to Leviticus, on the cross, although Jesus deserves the blessing of God, As the Christ, the King, he is totally righteous and deserves honour and glory, yet on the cross he is cursed. On the cross Jesus takes the curse you and I, his people, deserve. And he does this so anyone who trusts in him, who recognises, actually that's what I deserve. I deserve to face the curse of God, but I see in Christ crucified, the Lord is dying in my place. God promises, I will credit you with his righteousness. Faith credited as righteousness. This is the great exchange, the great swap. On the cross, Jesus receives the curse of lawbreakers so that by faith, lawbreakers can receive the blessing of God, which is, verse 14, what's the blessing of God? Being credited as righteous and receiving God's spirit. We started with the question of what does it mean to be blessed? It's not wrong to use the term blessed to talk about God's temporary kindnesses, good health, good relationships, good things in life. But if that's the extent of the blessing you're looking for, you're missing out, you're selling yourself short. 
God promises in the gospel eternal blessing. Instead of the the curse we deserve, eternally cast out of God's presence, God promises the blessing of eternity with him. And we take hold of God's blessing not by repeating mantras, not by religious rituals or legalism. God promises that blessing to all who turn and trust in Jesus. Now, this passage is a warning, a warning to fools who try to earn blessing through the law. That's the point. But it's actually an encouragement, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, isn't this an encouragement to see how good Jesus is and what God has done for us in Jesus? An encouragement to, to trust in Jesus, to cling to him, to receive the spirit and to enjoy the blessings of that great exchange. Righteousness for sin, blessing. For curse. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus and what he's done for us. We praise you for pouring out your spirit, for crediting believers in Jesus with his righteousness and for sparing us from the curse of sin and lavishing us with the blessing of your presence. Help us hold to this truth, to cling to Jesus. Protect us from false teaching, false gospels, from the temptation to look to what we achieve for our eternal security rather than resting in Christ. May you strengthen us in Christ's name. Amen.